Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Tuesday, August 16th. We're going to start with the announcement made just um, not too, too long ago. BC's chief coroner saying that as of now, with the numbers compiled for the latest uh, for the last few months, more than 10,000 people have died because of illicit drugs. That's since the province declared a public health emergency back in April of 2016. And Lisa LaPointe saying the average is still about six deaths per day. That is the number of drug-related deaths recorded in the first half of 2022 that has already surpassed the same period last year. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Guy Felicella, a harm reduction advocate. Guy, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jill. I wish every time we talk to you, and I'm always very thankful that you that you come on the show to talk about this, I wish we were talking about the trend going in a different direction, that things were improving. But when we look at these numbers, and again, hear that it's an average of six people dying every day, clearly what we're doing isn't working. What do you think we need to change? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it uh, you know, it's just not... Uh not effective enough of what we're doing. You know, we're doing little pilot projects here, or, you know, a couple of treatment beds here. And um, it just doesn't meet the magnitude of the, of the crisis. And the sad truth is that the illicit drug supply uh, changes quicker than our response. Uh, and so we'll continue to see it at uh, the rate that it is. And, and, and then it will start increasing. It, it will impact more people. And when you say that it changes quicker than than our response, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I I listened to you earlier today. You were part of the news conference with the chief coroner, with Lisa LaPointe, uh, with Leslie McBain, with Moms Stop the Harm. And I know you talked about this. Leslie McBain talked about a success story or an example of somebody that was addicted to these illicit drugs, but was getting help, was treated with dignity and did get help. So she talked about that being a success story. How do we expand on that? Or how is it possible, do you think, to make it so we have more success stories? I think, you know, you have to look at success is built on trying. And if we're not giving people the ability to try or feel like they're progressing, then that gets dehumanizing real quick. Um, So oftentimes, well, always there's people trying. Uh, They may not be getting, you know, anybody that gets results has to keep trying. And unfortunately, what happens a lot of the times is that the drug supply is so toxic that they don't get to try as many times that I did. Uh, and because that's increasing, we have to look at a way of where we can support people to have substances that they know they're consuming. Uh, whether they have an addiction or not, listen, not everybody is ready at the stage of their lives to go address their substance use disorder because that's only one factor of it such as the drugs. We're talking about the demons of the past, the trauma, the verbal abuse, the sexual abuse, whichever it is that's driving uh, some people to use those substances. That's what needs to be the underlying issue that we have to focus on as well and understand that that does take time. I'm I'm glad that you brought that up and, and for people that aren't familiar with your story as well and you've talked about it on this program uh, your your background and how you uh, kind of overcame this uh, when you say that people now aren't getting as many chances what was it though for you that that kind of was the turning point or that made it that you were able to get to a point where you were able to get better 
well, you know what? I realized, like, I didn't, I didn't have awareness of an undiagnosed learning disability. I didn't have an aware. People ask me, like, why do you use drugs the way you do? I, I didn't, I didn't know. I just thought that that's what I do. Uh, and then, you know, holding back and buried deep in the in the pits of my soul was the trauma that I endured that I was too afraid to address. And once I started getting support with that, I started having more awareness of who I was. Um, as a person and started to build from that. But obviously that took, you know, therapy, counseling, and it's still ongoing today. You know, I still have that uh, feeling of low self-esteem on some things in my life today. And it's still that reflection. Uh, it's a lifetime of learning. And so we, we just haven't got that place where people can access those services. You can pick up the phone to call detox, but how about we have a facility where somebody can go in and talk to somebody about the next steps and what that looks like instead of picking up the phone. And we need to do more of that and have more programs that are outside where people can go and speak to a, a human being instead of calling them on the phone. And looking at the numbers, the release today as well, the the, the chief coroner saying that these these numbers, and, and I'm, I'm even loath to use the word numbers, we're talking about people, uh, these people, Lisa LaPointe saying more than three quarters of the lives lost this year were male, uh, almost the same percentage between the ages of 30 and 59. D- does that surprise you at all? No, not at all, because you know what? Men don't talk about things. I mean, that's one of the things that I'd always struggled with because I was always told that I had to be that guy that you don't talk about that stuff. And I think, you know, that stigma that we hold, and it's just deadly. It's like a lethal combination of not being able to feel like you can have the ability to talk to somebody because, you know, sadly, I think us as a society, we we would appreciate having a little compassion if we're telling a story, but... Sometimes that's met with judgment or it's often reflected in like, yeah, what are you here for? Are you here to get help or are you here to, you know, be uh, as as prescribers often say drug seeking? And that just drives people to not talk about stuff either because they feel uncomfortable. And and that makes sense completely. Uh, Guy, one other question. The chief coroner mentioned that when this public health emergency was declared back in 2016, the words decriminalization, safe supply, those weren't even part of the conversation then. They are part of the conversation, at least now. Do you think that that is helping? I mean, it's helping some people, but not to the extent that it should be. I mean, obviously, it needs to be scaled up. And, you know, you're going to need a medical model, but you're going to need a non-prescriber model as well, because that doesn't meet the needs of people. You have to remove barriers of, you know, of people having to access a facility twice a day or going to a pharmacy twice a day. You know, if you're addressing one thing like the substance, that's fine. But if you're not giving people to have the ability to move forward in their lives, like get a job or uh, find housing or reconnect with family, uh, then it's your life is revolved around, you know, uh, addressing your substance uh, instead of having a productive life. All right. Uh, Guy, what what would you like people to take away from these numbers? And and sadly, whenever we get this update from the chief coroner, uh, the numbers are, are getting more, like we say, that, that number of six people a day, the average of six deaths a day. What would you like people to take away from this? Or what would you like people to do? I'd like you to be better. But in order to be better, you know what? You need to start, like... Uh normalizing like in our society like carrying naloxone i would love to see every every i would love to see everybody that uh you know had a naloxone kit hanging off their backpack and 
you know, having a, a little understanding that it's just like, you know, CPR or if somebody's going to have a heart attack because you never know when it's going to happen and it happens in every community. And I think you need to encourage people to get trained and, and to, to carry it and to, and to normalize it that, hey, this is, this is what's happening right now. Um, and we want to be there to show support for people who, who need that help. All right. Guy Falicella, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Thanks, Jill. Well, just before we broke for the news, I played for you a longer version of an exchange. It took place outside of a transit station with a man who took it upon himself to tell two women who were speaking a language that was not English, telling them that they should be speaking English. And the video itself that has been posted and been getting a lot of attention runs about two minutes. I played most of it just before the break. This is just a tiny snippet from that. Okay. I was born, raised, and educated here. You don't, why don't you care? Why don't you care? I don't know you. Well, I don't know you. I don't know you either. Why do we have to bend over backwards? You move to Japan, you learn Japanese because you're in Japan. Bro, you don't have the right to tell people what they speak. Let's bring in our next guest. Doris Ma is joining us now, a co-founder of the Stand With Asians Coalition. Doris, thank you so much for making some time for us today. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. When you see that video and hear that exchange, what is your reaction? Well, my reaction uh, was when I first heard about the uh, saw about the video, was there was a lot of similarity between this case uh, uh, as well as the one that happened last year in Aspen Park. Uh, some of you may remember uh, last year we organized a rally that attended by 500 residents in Surrey in Aspen Park. Uh, a, a racist couple flew uh, garbage to a group of South Asian uh, grandmothers. And the language that they spoke was very similar to this gentleman. Uh, what they were saying in Aspen Park back last year was, um, this is Canada, don't speak Punjabi, and you need to speak English. And this, this person, uh, uh, this incident happened just two days ago, it's very similar language, is this is Canada and you need to speak English. And he used uh, a scenario, like if you're in Japan, you need to, to, to learn about Japanese. Canada is a multicultural country. Uh, we celebrate diversity and inclusion. And for somebody like this to tell a group of elderly um, women, uh, Asian women, to not speak their own language uh, and only speak English, it's not just racist. It's very hateful, hurtful. Uh, and as, as an Asian woman, uh, who, I have a mother who regularly go on transit, and I really fear for her safety and I fear for her uh, just for her to go out by herself. And, and, and like you said, too, there have been other incidents uh, similar to this with people taking it upon themselves to, to go up to people, to complete strangers and telling them uh, to speak English. Is, is the message, though, even though they're not actually saying the words, is the message being be more Canadian that, that people, if you're living or, or I mean, he doesn't even know if the, the people there are living here or if they're visiting here. But the message seems to be that, that you need to, to fit in. You need to speak English. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think there is a fundamental um, mentality here. And it's very similar to the racist couple in Surrey. Is um, there is a sense of entitlement? 
Uh, and and this is why I said it last year in Aspen Park at a rally, and I wanted to say it again. It's very important that we have to pay attention. And by the way, I'm actually speaking to you from New Westminster, which is the Caucasian First Nations and belong to the Hakamiam and Skohomish speaking people. It's all efforts on uh, anti-racism must work t- towards justice on the stolen land through truth, reconciliation and decolonization. And for these people who were racist to say that we own this land, and of course we, none of us own this land except the First Nations people in this country, and they have this sense of entitlement. And they said, this is why, you know, we own this land and we speak English and you have to speak English. And fundamentally, unless we address true reconciliation, there's no way we can actually really, truly, meaningfully address uh, racism issue in Canada. Right. And and looking at this as well, I mean, for for me, when I watch the video and I've listened to it uh, several, several times, I, I just don't understand why somebody would be so... Uh, irate about this that would get so angry that it had nothing to do with him it wasn't as if somebody came up to him and expected he would speak another language or expected that he should be able to interact i mean this was this was people having a conversation albeit in public but it was a private conversation that had nothing to do with this person well exactly and and he was just a person that's on the street and i think uh, i have to point out this a particular individual who claimed to be a lawyer, a retired lawyer, uh, graduated from McGill University. Uh, so uh, CTV actually last year did a story, uh, and this person actually had written uh, an apology letter to Richmond News uh, and saying, you know what, I, it was my fault, and I apologize, you know, it's going on in social media. And so I think what I'm trying to say is this person has never been caught Yes, the video was circulating last year. There was an incident in Vancouver uh, Convention Center, and this time is in Richmond, the SkyTrain station. We don't know where this gentleman lives, but he actually has a lot of problems, right? So, but but the fact of the matter is, he's keep doing it. He's keep traveling on SkyTrain from Vancouver. He can be in Burnaby, he can be in Surrey, he can be in Richmond and Coquitlam, and he can do the same thing again and again to who? Elderly people, right? Last year in Surrey, Aspen Park, elderly parents, elderly mothers. This time it's a group of elderly women. I want to point out the fact that oftentimes racialized women and children are the targets of these racist people. And, you know, I really feel like as a society, we have to do something about this. And I think I have to point out that this is a systemic change we have to see. And there are ways to change it. And I want to point out that I work for a member of parliament, Peter Julian. He has a motion, uh, M14, that's anti-hate crimes and incidents. Because hate crimes are only considered hate crimes by definition if it's a bodily attack or property damage. And this person could be traveling on transit using hate speech against people, racist speech like this. But there's nothing police can do. You can call the hotline you can call the police and police can show up and just and he can just write a public letter to apologize at the end of the day he is continuing to do the same thing against racialized people on transit and there got to be ways to change it and i think it has to come from the top from the federal government uh, and this m14 from uh, from our MP peter julian i think will do uh, a significant uh, help to to stop this
Uh, and you mentioned uh, Peter Julian, the MP. He also put out a statement yesterday and referencing the number of police reported hate crimes increasing by 72 percent just in the last two years. But is that number, do you know, is that the number of reports or the number of, of charges that have been laid or, or where does that number come from as far as that big increase in hate crimes? The report, uh, it's a police report hate crimes, uh, and it's collected by Statistics Canada. It takes them a long time because imagine how many different police uh, enforcement across the country, and they collected this data. Uh, as it was said by uh, uh, MP Peter Julian yesterday from his press release, 72% last two years increase of police reported hate crimes. These are the reported police hate crimes. How many hate crimes are not being reported? If you can think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 6% increase were targeting people based on race and ethnicity. I've said it many times and I will say that again. You can have the most comprehensive, accessible, uh, bilingual, uh, not bilingual, but multilingual uh, police reporting system. If people are not willing to report, this is a problem. I don't know whether or not your viewers or your listeners are able to listen to the background, the the elderly woman's response saying, oh, don't, don't worry about because I can understand Mandarin. And I heard them saying to the young lady, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, it's I've lived here for 30 years. And, you know, why is this happening? You know, what happens is a lot of victims are not reporting because sometimes they lack language um, ability. But even if we have the most accessible and multilingual reporting system, a lot of a lot of the victims are not willing to report it because they think that this is, you know, nobody will pay attention. What does it go? Like, you know, is this person going to be caught? The fact of the matter is this person is continuing to do it since 20, this uh, incident happened in 2020 in a convention center being reported by CTV. This person has been doing it for the past two years. We don't know how many incidents have happened caused by this, gent- this, this person. And, you know, it, it was, I have to just say thank you to this young woman who taped the whole thing and put it on TikTok. Otherwise, you know, the, the media would not pick it up. But the fact of the matter is this person needs to face justice because what he's doing is wrong and it cannot continue. All right, Doris, I appreciate you making the time for us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, a Canadian Army veteran looking for treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder as well as a traumatic brain injury was shocked, to say the least, when he was unexpectedly and seemingly offered medical help by a Veteran Affairs Canada employee and told that perhaps he wanted to consider or could be offered medical assistance in dying. Again, this came from a Veterans Affairs Canada employee and several sources telling Global News about this happening. Sources saying a VAC service agent brought up medical assistance in dying or made unprompted in a conversation with the veteran. This comes as more questions have been asked about the offering of this service and if it's in fact being done in situations where it is inappropriate. Joining us to talk more about this is Helen Long, COO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Helen, thank you so much for being with us to talk more about this. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Uh, We we don't have a ton of details apart from what we've been reporting uh, today. Mercedes Stevenson, our bureau chief in Ottawa, uh, broke this story earlier today. Uh, But what is your response to learning first that this was something that was brought up unprompted? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really important, there's a couple of things. What's really important to us is that Canadians should have the right to both live and the right to choose their end of life. And certainly Canadian veterans, perhaps above anyone else, should be fully supported in accessing health care and supports that they need, including mental health supports. You know, MAID can be requested and consented to only by an individual, and no one should be coerced to have MAID by someone else, including our veterans. So I think, you know, what we've seen, Veterans Affairs Canada has acknowledged publicly that they've addressed this case and they're investigating the issue. I think it's important to know that in Canada, we have a range of systems with checks and balances so that inappropriate suggestions or cases in which uh, made is perhaps offered inappropriately can be looked at and, and addressed. And in this case, too, one of the issues also, not only that there are sources saying that the veteran never brought this up, that it was put to him as an option, but also put to him by an agent, put to him by somebody who's not a medical doctor, not a psychiatrist. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Veteran Affairs Canada is investigating that situation. I think it's totally appropriate in a healthcare discussion around end of life for a professional uh, physician or nurse practitioner to discuss made, but it's not something that should be offered or, um, you know, that someone should be coerced by an individual who is not working within that, that healthcare space in that role. Right, because it seems like in this case too, or at least everything that we're hearing about this, this wasn't a discussion about end of life or medical assistance in dying. This was a discussion about post-traumatic stress and a brain injury. Yeah, and I mean, we're re- obviously I'm seeing what you're seeing. We don't have any other details, but I would say that it's certainly appropriate for clinicians, medical doctors and nurse practitioners to have these conversations around the end of life and even for other individuals to perhaps provide information upon request. Um, but really, that should be on the request of an individual and, and otherwise it should be a clinician who is uh, having that conversation as related to an end of life discussion. Right. Are there concerns then as far as this is one case that we know of a veteran who's come forward and his family has come forward to to say that they were very shocked and surprised by this. Are there concerns that this could be happening on a bigger scale? I don't think we know anything that would lead us to think there are concerns. I think the system is uh, a robust system. There's a very careful assessment process to assessors, both of who will uh, actually look for coercement and ensure that uh, people aren't being inappropriately um, suggest, you know, being inappropriately asked to have made or suggested that they have made. Uh, so I don't, there's nothing to lead us to believe that's the case. I think it's really important that we remember that people should be supported in living their lives and that made should only be um, initiated or assessed at, at the request of an individual.
Right. And and even in that, though, and, and I think people would agree that, that it is a very important part of, of our healthcare system. It is something that people use and do request. But there have been other stories as well uh, of people going, looking at that. Maybe they wouldn't have looked at it before, but cases where people couldn't find adequate housing or couldn't find adequate, adequate care or adaptive housing for, say, a disability, that were considering it in those scenarios where it, it it isn't really end of life, but it, it seemed like it was the only alternative. Yeah, and I think it's important to know that a person can't be found eligible because of that lack of social support, but it certainly adds a complexity uh, to cases where a person's basic needs aren't done. I think, you know, we know that vulnerable populations have been asking for additional supports for years, and there are enormous clear short, shortfalls in both the healthcare and the social services system that need to be addressed. I think it's time that the government hears this. Um, you know, it's a bit ironic that NAID is what has brought this this to the forefront. Um, so those needs need to be addressed. At the same time, we can't deny NAID to those people who truly meet the eligibility criteria um, because of the failings of a separate system. Right. Uh, Is it too, do you think, as far as the discussions that are had about MAID, is it a good safeguard that those discussions are only supposed to be with a primary caregiver, uh, say a doctor, a family doctor or a psychiatrist? They're not supposed to be with, say, agents with Veterans Affairs or others who might be involved in conversations about someone's health care? Well, I I mean, I think for sure physicians and nurse practitioners have a professional obligation to uh, discuss made with a patient if that's something that may be uh, part of that patient's treatment uh, options. I think uh, along with things such as palliative care, um, I think for others, providing information, you know, a lot of the work that we do at Dying with Dignity Canada is around information and resources. So providing people with the information that they need in terms of eligibility or the right people to call the care coordination in their province, uh, I think that's fine. Um, but yeah, there's certainly a difference between a, a treatment discussion and a referral of resource. And and do you think as well, when we look at MAID and we look at the numbers, it's not a surprise, obviously, that the numbers are higher, uh, the more that this is becoming a, an option. And this is something that's that's talked about more regularly. So, so not a surprise that we're seeing more people choose MAID or we're seeing more people die with medical assistance. But are there safeguards in there, do you think, to make sure we're not seeing a huge increase in the number of deaths that would show people that wouldn't have died are choosing to die, that, that it is kind of that number is the same, but there are more people that are, that are taking this into account or choosing made. Yeah, I think as the eligibility criteria expands or changes, you know, it is natural that you would see more cases. And that's what we saw last year. Health Canada just released their uh, third annual report. The findings were pretty consistent with the prior year um, in terms of who's accessing made and for what reasons with the exception of that small addition to the new, um, you know, new requirements. So I think nothing out of the ordinary there, nothing that needs to sound alarm bells. We're still well within where countries that have been practicing made for a much longer period of time are. Um, but certainly something that I think, you know, as, as Health Canada's uh, making some amendments to the reporting and the monitoring, it's great to be collecting even more information so that we can make sure that there aren't um, you know, safeguards that need to be added or addressed as we, as time progresses.
Do you think there will be, as we see it, perhaps the the parameters being being uh, expanded when we're talking about mental health, if we're talking about other conditions that might fall under uh, that the area where you could have a conversation or you could choose made? Are, are there safeguards in there to make sure it's not being pushed on people? Well, in terms of uh, made specifically for those with a mental disorder as their sole underlying condition, we know that the law will change in March of 2023. That will become legal. We don't yet know uh, what if there will be additional safeguards, uh, what exactly that will look like. There's a parliamentary committee, a joint committee that's currently reviewing that. There was an expert panel that released a collection of recommendations. Uh, but at this point, I would say that's not quite finalized. So we will see what comes of that in the next few months. But but definitely there should be, you know, it's a very complex situation when you're dealing with a mental disorder and a MAID request. We want to make sure that it's as safe a process as it, as it can be. And, and, you know, I think it's important to know that the number of people that we expect to be found eligible under that criteria will be a minute, um, you know. So that that's somewhere that, yes, we're looking forward to seeing that there's strong uh, safeguards in place to ensure that people are getting the care they need uh, before they're looking at made as an, an option. All right. Helen Long, thank you so much for making the time for us today and joining us to talk about this. You're welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. We started the show talking about this as well. BC's chief coroner saying more than 10,000 people have died in this province due to illicit drugs. That's since the province declared a public health emergency back in April of 2016. And looking at the number of deaths, an average of six deaths every day. And the number of drug-related deaths in the first half of this year has already surpassed the same time period last year. Joining us to talk more about these numbers and what we are doing is Lisa Lapointe, BC's Chief Coroner. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me. The number of of six people, the average of six people, six lives being lost every day, even though sadly we have heard that number before, it just seems like such a high number when we're talking about, as, we, as we've talked about in the past, deaths that, that really are preventable. When you make these announcements, when you, when you stand up and, and put these numbers out there again, what goes through your mind? Yeah, thank you for asking that. And, and you are right. We need six people dying every day. It's, it's, I think, almost hard for people to wrap their heads around, you know, we have a, a fatality, a, a motor vehicle fatality at a, 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 corner, a street corner in Vancouver and six people die. That's, that's news, and, and everybody hears about it. Six people die every single day in our province from drug toxicity. And, you know, I worry that people are getting um, used to it, which is, which is awful, because um, these are deaths that are preventable, as you mentioned. And they are people who are dying everywhere in the province. Every community has been impacted. Uh, and people from all walks of life, uh, families are just devastated when they hear the news and they get the call, either their 20-something-year-old son or their 40-something-year-old son or, you know, people of all ages. And um, it's it's tragic every single time. You must hear this from people as well. I know every time we talk about this on the radio station, I get email or I get calls about this. And, and whether people come out and say it outright or they imply it, and to use your, your kind of comparison there to a car crash, there is still this idea that, well, if you die in a car crash, it was an accident, it wasn't your fault. If you die of an illicit drug overdose, you bear some of that responsibility. 
Yeah, you're right. That is certainly, I think, um, um, a narrative that we've heard for many, many years, you know, for, for decades. There was a real campaign against drug use and against drug users and convincing us that uh, drug users were bad people. And really what we know now, and there's been much more research, and I can tell you as a coroner who, who actually sees the stories and meets with the families, they are not bad people. They are regular people, and sometimes they fall into drug use because of an injury, um, and, the, and uh, the prescribed drug isn't meeting their needs. But sometimes they're dealing with other trauma that we don't know about. Sometimes it's casual use. It's, it's young men doing young men things and and, uh, and taking drugs at a party or with some friends. And, of course, now the, the drug supply is so toxic and they die. And none of them deserve to die. Um, you know, there are many, many people around, and our premier being one of them who's fully admitted that he, you know, he used drugs when he was a young man, um, he might not be alive today. So I think we have to be compassionate and say um, this is a health uh, crisis. Uh, we have the means to help people, and how do we keep people alive? And, and frankly, I, I kind of like to use the comparison with alcohol. Alcohol costs our country billions of dollars a year, and many, many people die of alcohol-related complications. Um, but we accept alcohol use. It's, it, people want to use alcohol, and we accept those consequences. Um, and, and really, I, I think we need to look at people who use drugs the same. They are just people who get onto a path, and then I think we have a responsibility to help them in the best way we can get them back <laughs> into a healthy place. So clearly what we're doing now, though, isn't, Working And I, it was nice to hear a couple of the speakers at the news conference earlier today, uh, Leslie McBain, talking about a success story, somebody who had been helped and was able to, to use that help and to leave and to, to not be uh, dealing with addiction or, or to, I, I suppose, not be facing imminent death every day. But clearly, if we're still seeing six people a day die from this, the, the, what we're doing now isn't working. So what would you like to see change? Yeah, so Leslie McBain's story was uh, about St. Paul's Hospital, and I have heard that many times from families that their loved ones end up acutely ill and they end up at St. Paul's Hospital, and the care they get is uh, fantastic and they're treated with respect and compassion. The challenge is when in the Lower Mainland or somewhere else where they do receive services, they leave that and they're, where do they connect? How do they stay connected? Who is looking out for their needs? So we... The speakers today um, talked about the lack of a coherent system of care, and that's something that our death review panel called for, so people know where to go when they need help. Um, and we know that depending on where you are in the province, uh, there some places in the province there is nowhere to go. There is no clinician who is willing to accept you as a patient. Uh, there is nowhere you can go for treatment uh, and or recovery that is, um, that is affordable. And, uh, we, and, and we still are waiting to see the results from some of this uh, funding that's been provided for treatment and recovery. What's the evaluation and how has that turned out? So what we're looking for is a cohesive provincial system of care. This is what our death review panel recommended, so that if you have a substance use um, disorder or you're experiencing problematic substance use, you can access, first of all, a safe supply, so you're not going to die, and then be supported in, in your needs around treatment and helping people to recovery. Right now, there, there are many, many people who, who would be looking for treatment, 
and um, it's just not available, or there are big wait lists, uh, or there isn't, you know, they can't afford it where, where they are. And when you mentioned the death review panel and and talking about that during the news conference today as well, uh, d- did you say that the recommendations that we have not adopted the recommendations, or there are some key ones that, for whatever reason, at this point, they just they have not been implemented? Yeah, so the recommendations are just that. They are recommendations by the members of the death review panel who were subject matter experts that we brought together uh, at the coroner service. And they were recommendations to the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, and uh, the CEOs of the health authorities. And um, we have not had a response. So they may be working on them, but in terms of a specific response uh, from those recipients, uh, those who received the recommendations, we have not heard we do know that the province is supportive of safe supply currently as a prescriber model. Um, we also know that there are some significant challenges um, encouraging clinicians to prescribe. There's a lot of reluctance. And again, it's some of that stigma you talked about earlier that, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to provide drugs to people and maybe get myself in trouble or just a, relax, a reluctance to um, take on a patient who is, using substances. So there's a long way to go in, in, in terms of recognizing this as a health issue and uh, really providing meaningful health-focused services. Uh, you mentioned safe supply, and I know this was talked about as well, uh, just uh, suggesting or saying that when this was first declared a public health emergency in 2016, we weren't talking about safe dis- supply, we weren't talking about decriminalization. How much do you think that will change things? Yeah, I think it will change things a great deal. Um, I certainly think that safe supply is is a game changer in terms of life or death. Currently, people who are dependent on substances, and it's a dependency. It's it's not something you can say, you know, very easily, maybe with support, I'm going to stop tomorrow. And there are many reasons people um, rely on substances. Uh, so people are reliant on the illicit market, which we know is a profit-driven uh, primarily organized crime market and um, very, very, very dangerous, very volatile. So a safe supply would ensure that people um, stabilize, that what they are prescribed is what they expected to be taking. Um, we've seen some real success stories with people who are receiving safe supply where they now um, can eat um, because they, they didn't even have money to eat on a regular basis. Uh, they can reconnect with families or health care providers and, and see their lives start to stabilize and then at some point uh, potentially move in towards treatment and recovery. So safe supply is, is huge in terms of helping um, our province recover from this public health emergency. Decriminalization is not going to be as um, a direct uh, a consequence, I think, it, but it is uh, going to change hearts and minds uh, moving this away from a, a sting, um, punishment-focused, uh, stigmatizing, you know, um, marginalizing, and allowing people to, to have a safe supply. They will no longer be criminals. And I'm um, hoping that we will, we will start to treat people uh, with a little bit more compassion and respect. And certainly police will not be the focus anymore, uh, but starting to really move towards community health and community support for people who use substances. 
Uh, Guy Falicella mentioned something. He was on the program earlier uh, talking, and he talked from personal experience as well uh, about trauma, about what happens to somebody that maybe they are still dealing with or, or the thing that, that was the pain, the trauma, something they were dealing with that led them to using these substances. And that if we're not focusing on that as well, or at least having that be part of the conversation, we're missing out on a big area where, where, where that's kind of what needs to be looked at. Is that part of the, the review panel as well? Or is that something where you think we're not focusing enough on why it is people turn to substances? Yeah, so what the review panel recommended, one of their recommendations was around a continuum of care and having services available for people when, where they need them and, and the appropriate services. And, and, and Guy is a, such a compassionate voice on this subject because he, he's lived it and he knows so many people personally who are living it or, or who have lived it but are sadly no longer with us. And, and we know that people come to substance use for all sorts of reasons, and that's why compassion is so important. We don't know what other people have had to live through and why drugs is the best option for them. And, um, and so it is recognizing that it's, it's, a, it's a, whole, a wholesome approach in terms of helping people with their physical um, illnesses, their, their emotional challenges, their poverty, their housing, um, mental illness. We know that a significant number of people who die as a result of substance use have struggled with mental health disorders. But we also know that a significant number of those who die have accessed health care services. So they are reaching out for help. They are going to emergency rooms uh, or reaching out to uh, clinicians. They're not hidden, but they're just not getting the help that they need. And that was the recommendation of the death review panel. We need a robust system of care um, to help to provide this, the, the care that people need when and where they need it to turn this around. All right. Lisa LaPointe, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. And I thank you for talking about this. It's so important.